Global finance is fragmented and the ways of the world are shifting. But we all know this, when we build together, we thrive together. This is Converge, a new podcast from Convera, where financial incumbents and iconoclasts come together to inspire, where disagreement breeds discovery, where anticipation overcomes trepidation and curiosity reigns supreme. Come with us as we shape the future of finance. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Converge. I am thrilled to be joined by Tina Baker-Taylor, VP of Policy and Regulatory Strategy at Circle, as well as Patrick Gauthier, CEO of Convera, and my co-host for this episode, Mickey Tesfaye, content lead here at Money 2020. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here. Tina, could you introduce yourself before we get started? Sure. So I am Circle's Vice President of Policy and Strategy for EMEA. I lead our government affairs and our regulatory strategy when it comes to our international expansion. Excellent. And Patrick? Well, I'm Patrick Gauthier, the CEO of Convera, and I've affirmed the crypto skeptic yes. uh, in spite of the fact that I find the technology fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. And Mickey, why are you here today? What brings uh, you here? Uh, thanks, Alex. A very tough audience to follow up with, right? <laughs> I'm Mickey. I am the content leader for Money 2020 Europe. So I'm delighted to have you folks at our show. It's been such a great time so far. And yeah. I couldn't get away from that Convera Circle conversation. So I had to no, bring myself in here again some way, yeah. right? You didn't totally. bring the robot, though. Well, you know, <laughs> next year, that's, you know, the way I'm going to do it. Awesome. He, he doesn't seem very portable, to be honest. <laughs> uh, anyhow, let me set the stage for our chat today. So recently, we know that lawmakers in the EU recently voted by large margin in favor of a new crypto licensing regime called Markets and Crypto Assets, or MICA, which makes it the first major jurisdiction in the world to introduce a comprehensive crypto law. The European Parliament also voted largely in favor of a separate law known as the Transfer of Funds Regulation, which requires crypto operators to identify their customers in a bid to halt money laundering, and this only had 14 abstentions. Circle, with Tina joining us today, is a global digital financial technology firm and the issuer of USDC and EuroC announced on May 21st that it had filed applications in France to become both a licensed electronic money institution and a registered digital asset services provider under rigorous requirements set forth by the French government. The permissions granted will enable Circle to onshore its flagship product for the European market, the EuroC, which is a reserve-backed stablecoin, and begin the process of enabling EuroC to become a markets and crypto assets conforming e-money token under the new regime. So, the discussion here today is about regulations and compliance in the digital asset space, progress, challenges, skepticism, opportunities, Circle has, from what I understand, embraced a regulation-first approach in promoting the use of fully reserved fiat-backed digital currencies to empower businesses, promote financial inclusion, and drive internet speed, cost-effective global payments. What are the differences between being regulation-first with digital currencies or digital assets versus fiat currencies, Tina? 
Well, I think we don't have in most jurisdictions regulatory clarity in some cases and in others specific regimes focused on this technology as a whole Mm -hmm. and how those assets interact. So those could be market conduct provisions. They could be provisions around how electronic money is issued. Mm -hmm. So what is transformational for the market and crypto assets regime is it's the first of its kind that is pretty much bespoke. So it takes a look at everything that might fall outside of MIFID, which is the securities regulation in Mm -hmm. Europe, and says that anything that isn't within that, but yet is a financial offering that is crypto or digital asset in nature will fit into this new regime. It is pivotal because it brings together regulatory clarity for 27 member states. So it's an entire trading block Mm -hmm. that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And it has passed into law. So it's been signed. It'll be added to the official register in a couple of weeks, which means the countdown starts for regulation to come into force. So in 12 months, stablecoins, which I think is a terrible term, we prefer (laughs) tokenized cash or digital currency, which Mm -hmm. is what Circle is, will come into the regulated perimeter. So this time next year. Mm -hmm. And 18 months from now, the rest of crypto asset market participants and the services they offer, so exchanges, custodians, et cetera, Mm -hmm. will come into the regulated perimeter. I think what's interesting is when you look around the globe, we have regulators looking predominantly first at stablecoins or or tokenized cash regulation. So in the UK, we'll have stablecoins come into the regulated perimeter this time next year as well within the Financial Services and Markets Bill that should receive royal assent this month. Japan has just passed stablecoin legislation. There are a number of bills being proposed and debated in in Congress literally this week around stablecoin regulation. And so I think what that tells us is because fiat-backed, fully reserved stablecoins do have a nexus with traditional payments infrastructure, and they are being actually used for payments, and they have a codependency with banking rails and other payment rails they are first to be brought into. So that doesn't really answer your question about fiat, but it does give you an indication of, I think, why policymakers are focused on digital currency regulation first. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. So Patrick, Convera helps customers navigate global regulations, which are, as you have said, often fragmented. They do this through deep knowledge, partnerships, and expertise in global markets. Can digital assets, in your opinion, like stablecoins, CBDCs, without widespread global agreement, and without interoperability across business models, this is something you, you've spoken about that you see to be very important in moving forward in the ability to interoperate. Can they truly be a part of a regulation first approach right now? And why or why not, in your view? So, as stated when we opened, you know, I've, I've been very skeptical of, of cryptocurrencies for a while, not because of the, the technical attributes of the solution for the most part but largely because of the business attributes, right? So I think the progress from a regulatory framework standpoint are really important because it creates clarity on how to operate. I think notwithstanding what's happening in Congress right now, what we're also seeing in the U.S. is a number of major litigation, the most recent one with Binance, which shows that the free-for-all is not a particularly healthy environment if for no other reason than each time you have these litigations or each time you have a failure like FTX, what you end up with is a massive credibility loss for these types of assets. And so for me, the engagement of the regulators on this to provide the framework is super important. What it then does also is it creates indeed the bridge with the existing infrastructure. 
the piece I think that the, the crypto industry has aired on, as far as I'm concerned, is this belief that the entire crypto infrastructure would replace wholesale what was in existence with regards to the management of fiat currencies all the way to central banks. And the reality is monetary mass needs to be managed. And, and the notion, you know, the, the sometimes libertarian notion that we no longer need governments to do this, etc. And it makes for great movies, but it does not make for great business. Yeah. And so what I'm looking for, you know, in, in the maturation of, uh, of the solution that are offered is indeed those frameworks that allows the cohabitation of new classes of assets and new ways to process those transactions with the existing and with the particular seminal roles that central banks will continue to play, that regulators must play in order to create the business conditions that then allows us to provide good solutions for our customers. Yeah, well said. Just on that point, Patrick, because I, f- I find that so fascinating, and maybe I can ask you a little. I guess what I always find so difficult to kind of understand and really come to terms with is when we do move cryptocurrency into a much more coherent regulatory structure, what does the value proposition of these various types of assets look like, right? Because I think you touched on that wonderful point about this libertarian philosophical kind of underpinnings with cryptocurrency. And and for me, maybe perhaps I don't understand the technicalities enough, but once we do move it into the regulated sector, is it just then a medium shift, right? Are we doing essentially similar things that we did with financial services now, but we just have a different technology? this time blockchain or distributed ledger technology, but essentially, is that where we end up or is it? Yeah, Yeah, so slightly, I'll be a little contrarian. I don't think that, Patrick, you're wrong in bringing up the the early philosophy around, you know, disrupting financial services. And certainly if you look at, you know, the genesis of Bitcoin, it is not, you know, a secret that it came about in the, the wake of the financial crisis in 2008. I would say, though, that the infrastructure, the regulatory considerations, and certainly the business models have indeed matured significantly since that time. Mm-hmm. And I would also argue that me being in, in the role that I am in, it has been since 2017 that I have been either working for a firm or working for an advocacy organization advocating to regulate this industry on behalf of the industry. So, you know, I can go back to 2018 with the UK's Treasury Select Committee and representing, you know, a firm at the time, but also an industry body asking the government to regulate. In the US, there are large firms. You mentioned that there there have been lawsuits this week. There's another large firm that equally has been asking for regulatory clarity um, and has been seeking licenses around the world and has been obtaining them in in some jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. So I think that, yes, there were early sentiments around kind of disrupting the bank and democratizing finance. I do think that for the most part that has moved on and everybody understands that you know, crypto probably needs some rules. If you're playing with people's money, that, you know, there's some best practices that we need to put into place, like commingling of client funds is a no-no, you know, basic things like that if you come from a traditional financial background like me. Mm-hmm. So having said that, to answer your question, I think what is critical is that we don't lose sight of what is actually transformative about this technology. And for me, that is the open source nature of it. So when you're thinking about CBC design or you're thinking about bringing in something like stablecoins into the, the payments ecosystem, what is unique about the way that those tools could be structured 
is that they offer open source interoperability, settlement times, the ability to move from one blockchain to another around the world with considerably less friction, less cost, and less intermediaries. Now, that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be any intermediaries to manage risk, as Patrick was suggesting. Certainly, Circle is an intermediate stablecoin. We manage those reserves. We manage the stability of the token, but we do so in an open source environment. So that's what's materially different. And I, when I shudder a little bit when I hear people talk about DLT again, because I thought we left that back in you know 2017. Mm-hmm. But to me, that kind of talks to closed networks or consortia networks. And I think that there's probably use cases where those work, but transferring value transparently and basically at the speed of the internet is only going to happen at scale with open source technology, Yeah, in my opinion. And so let me drill down and, and I'll let Patrick speak on this one. So the hot button term that relates to this is in the payment space is, is real-time payments or mm-hmm. real-time gross settlement. Patrick said to me the other day, well, we already have that in mm-hmm. a sense. So why is this so revolutionary when it's being delivered in, in another way through blockchain? What distinguishes it and why should we care so much about real-time payments via blockchain versus the current real-time payments that we have available to us now? Do you want to speak to that, Patrick? Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, even though I'm, you know, I'm a technologist at heart, right? Uh, people who know me know that I was programming when I was 10, so I'm a hacker. <laughs> and, 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 I, and there's, a, for me as a coder, an implicit elegance in the way uh, cryptocurrencies operate. Right? When I set a set that aside, business don't work on philosophy. Business works on P&L, yeah. right? And so you have to sort of think of technology for the problems that it solves. And indeed, to the point made, it's can can it reduce some of the infrastructure costs? Can it increase the serviceability of the types of goods and services provided? That's what I focus on, right, all the time. Yeah. And so I think there is still quite a bit of work to do to indeed kind of create this, this seamlessness. I, you know, PC2 open banking, the ability to actually connect directly into a bank account in order to move money in and out, creates uh, some of the foundation also for real-time payments, you know, there's there's a number of operational solutions to achieve real-time payments. Yeah. Ultimately, I don't think it's an either-or, right? Just think about the payment landscape today. We still have cash. Yeah. We still have checks. We still have, you know, we have ATM debit cards. We have two-message debit cards, you know, signature debit. We have credit. We have now, you know, buy now, pay later, etc. So there's always a multiplication of instruments. What is important is to be able to manage them in a way for the different participants, the payer, the payee, the consumers, the merchants, business to business, where actually there's a coherence so that the multiplication of option does not translate into increased complexity, increased cost to run businesses. So whether it is, you know, the managing the risk inherent to these types of value units, or assets, or the complexity associated with different types of technologies in rail, or you know the way in which different classes of indeed monetary units or, or assets can be applied to different classes of transaction. There's a role for business providers that, that will continue to be there to actually assist the users in running there. Mm-hmm. Here's the simplest way you can explain it. The web did not succeed because everybody was focusing on HTTP and HTTPS. All right. The web succeeded because it enabled 
access to information with a customer experience with CX that was materially better than what we had before, right? right? Yep. And I think this is the mental model that I apply to new technologies such as this. Does it allow you to materially improve the ability of customers who do not want to know the technical details, et cetera? Does it enable them to solve in a better way some problems that they have today? And if yeah. the answer is yes, you're going to see adoption. And I think yeah. on the path to adoption, you do need to have things such as a stable regulatory framework because yeah. that creates predictability for the participants. You do need to have elements of technical interoperability. You do need to have a notion of how different countries are going to interconnect uh, their, their respective infrastructure. Because let's face it, the bank of the world that will have a currency for the world, et cetera, I don't think we're going to see that in my lifetime, probably mm -hmm. not even in a lifetime of my kids, my grandkids. So the fact that different countries have different policies, different strategies, different ways in which you know, they pursue either monetary or fiscal action is not going to go away. And we're going to continue to have to sort of arbitrage or assist our clients in, in that particular context. Yeah. Alex, if I could just ladder up really quickly. Yep. Your, your question around how is this, you know, different to real-time payments that we have today. Yeah. Real-time payments today still have a settlement infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. And what you can't do necessarily is settle 24-7, seven days a week, right. in real-time, potentially cross-border, right. right? You can do that with stablecoins on-chain. On-chain activity happens, it just happens, yep. right? Yep. So that that is a material difference. And I'm not saying that all payments should go through an ecosystem like that. Sure. Yeah. But I think what is interesting is the payment ecosystem that we don't yet know about that we're going to need. So if you take a look at, you know, Apple announcing, you know, their their new virtual reality, it's materially better than some of the options that we've had, you know, in the past. We've tried to use some of these VR to convene, you know, metaverse events and, mm -hmm. you know, stuff and, you know, virtual reality. And the tech hasn't been good enough to, mm -hmm. to really get people to change their behavior. Yeah. So if that tech comes on and people do start, you know, playing around in the metaverse and we have this convergence with potentially gaming and e-commerce and all of the types of payments that will be internet enabled payments, mm -hmm. right? These are net new economic activities. Today, Fiat doesn't plug into that, right? So if you can create bridges so that you can potentially, you know, bring a wallet into that environment that potentially could toggle between Fiat payments and or digital currency payments, mm -hmm. I think that's where we're moving toward. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about kind of disrupting or evolving our traditional payments ecosystem that we have today. It's about all of the things that we don't even know are coming, and I think they're coming exponentially faster than they ever have before. If you take a look at the number of chat GTP4 users that are, you know, today it's like in the millions, mm -hmm. and you compare that to users of the internet, users of social media, and the time that it takes for people to adopt new technology yeah. is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Yeah. So I do think that the kind of future forward look around what those net new economic activities might be is probably much shorter time horizon than yeah. we think. Yeah. I need to jump in on that. Yeah, one. no, yeah, do yeah, yeah. jump in. So I, no. I agree and I disagree. And let, and let me explain what I mean by this. So the increasing cycle of development of, of technologies is a reality for sure, right? Powered by Moore's law. Here's what is also a reality, hit and miss, mm -hmm. right? 
Metaverse was the big talk of last year with Meta, et cetera. And then suddenly it was ChatGPT, et cetera. What's the difference between ChatGPT and Metaverse? ChatGPT actually solves some problems. Mm -hmm. Metaverse for right now is a nice toy for folks who like to play with technology. There's nothing wrong with that, by the Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. As a kid, I was hacking with transistors and and boards and and building computers. So there's nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, to run a business, you have to actually solve a a problem, right? Just check on the amount of money that Meta has been spending on Metaverse to really kind of have block, you know, let's face it, creating an event on the Metaverse right now uh, works better to be on a video conferencing solution, right? Just because I don't need to look at people that look blocky. Um, (laughs) I need to be able to see facial expressions and so on. And so I think that, you know, Certainly, it's very difficult to predict the future. And certainly, the very nature of of technology, especially internet-based technology, has been to open up unexpected avenues, right? And far from me as someone who who embraced innovation everywhere, to actually deny the importance of that. I think, however, the area that we need to be prudent in is to translate um, the opportunities for innovation in the future into a certainty for business right now, right? Mm -hmm. This is where often you fall into the shiny object uh, uh, problem of Silicon Valley and Mm -hmm. and buzzwords. And, 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 you know, this is, as as one of my favorite uh, saying goes, you know, when a man with experience meets a man with gold, they trade their loads. And and this is often what happens around (laughs) shiny objects. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think just on that point of the PNL and going back to the chat GPT example, and I think this is perhaps where... I'm also, I think, Patrick, you're increasingly convincing me, and and perhaps, Tina, maybe this is a challenging question, but I'm trying to figure out how much of it is a technology problem we're trying to solve with this thing, and how much of it is a problem with processes, a a human problem. And, And one analogy I'm thinking of is in the fintech space, one conversation that was very prominent is the need to have frictionless payments, right? How do you optimize checkout? And now I think back six months at Christmas, loads of e-commerce companies started adding fees for returns, right? So essentially what we did was we pushed the problem further down the line. And now actually some of the sessions that we've been together uh, putting on is the conversation is how much frictionless is good and how much friction is good because Mm. there is a point at which... and, and, And I think the commitment with the hit and miss, and this is where the regulatory piece is a bit complex to understand for me is are we committing to a path uh, with an emerging technology when we don't know so much about the future, right? Mm-hmm. We've kind of committed to regulating via the CBDC route, for instance, because we think that's very fruitful. But actually, when we think of the internet and in the early days, I think so much of the things that we think are great about the internet were very difficult for us to envision then, right? Like, we only yeah. envision them over time, over the hit and misses. The issue I'm thinking is with regulation, it's mm. so set, we are almost kind of putting it's ourselves very, very deep into the path to evolve right? regulation. Yeah, when, yeah. You, when you create rules. A great example of that is there's, um, Mika does not include DeFi. <laughs> and some of that was timing, and some of that was on purpose. Since then, we've had other standard bodies and regulators take a look at what we know today and how we could put governance around those activities 
and what we don't know. And so, you know, organizations like the Financial Action Task Force have said, look, we're not ready to make recommendations for DeFi because we don't know enough yet. And I think it's very smart, right? So that's a good example of not over-regulating just mm-hmm. because you're trying to fend off risks that you don't completely understand. I think that the friction argument is a really good one because would I like to be able to have and Circle does enable today the ability to remove the abstraction of, you know, HTML and HTTPS. And I don't think about, you know, sending you a global email. Mm-hmm. I just send you an email, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a cross-border email yeah, that exactly. I'm sending you, right? It could yeah. be anywhere in the world. Now, if I wanted to send you a cross-border payment, there's a whole bunch of friction in there. Yeah. So I think removing that abstraction to be able to send those, especially in a cross-border context and a peer-to-peer context, um, it makes a lot of sense. However, because there isn't that intermediary kind of moat in the middle a lot of times, then you don't necessarily have the ability to call these transactions back, right? And Mm -hmm. so it brings in a whole host of questions around fraud and phishing and scams. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the UK right now, we have push payment regulation being reviewed because banks are basically on the hook if somebody needs to call a payment back. And if you're using, you know, an immediately settled asset, that's very difficult to do. Additionally, within the regulatory framework, I think when we look at consumer protection, there are some frictions that are positive. They're called positive frictions. So for example, if you are onboarding a new customer onto a digital asset exchange, like a Coinbase, you ask questions, right? How much do you intend to, to spend every month? You know, why are you investing in these? Are you just using, you know, a, a DeFi wallet to be able to facilitate transactions? And so you get this information from a customer for a couple of reasons. One, you want to be able to kind of monitor behavior and see if anything changes in case there's a hack, somebody takes over their account or, you know, they go YOLO and you want to make sure that they don't, you know, YOLO too much. Yeah. But equally, it is to slow the customer down so that you're making intentional decisions about what you're doing. And some of those positive frictions are indeed helpful, right? So friction isn't always bad. And certainly from, you know, a consumer protection, I am not in the business and I feel very strongly about not protecting people into staying poor. Like I don't want to overprotect people. I think we're grown-ups and we should be able to make decisions with our money. However, I think that sometimes people can move fast and not be mindful, and so those frictions can enable help. That's such a really great point. And just to help me kind of add a bit more color to the context around the regulation, because I think we started out talking with the kind of regulatory body of like work that's emerging in Europe. And I guess this week was perhaps you know, the biggest endorsement I think we can imagine for the Mika regulations with what we saw uh, happening in the US with the SEC, right, with some fairly big and prominent companies getting into hot water. Just to kind of understand, because, you know... Those are two really different situations. No, no, of course not. I mean, in the sense of, like, I think there is a regulatory push coming in into the the US, and certainly that is an endorsement for Europe, which is taking the lead, right? Yeah. But for me to understand in terms of the stablecoin or the tokenized cash, because, of course, many are, are already in operation, what does that regulatory framework look like in terms of between Circle as a regulated entity providing this tokenized cash versus a non-regulated? What are the material differences in this asset? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think if you look at the situation in the US, you have an onshore company being, you know, held to account for, in, in my opinion, 
some lack of guidance that was provided at the beginning. Um, And then you have an offshore company that didn't necessarily try to adhere to, you know, any specific guidance at all. Circle, as a regulation-first company, has sought the licenses that were available to it in the United States. And so that's basically money transmission, which is similar to kind of e-money in um, Europe or the UK. And so from there, the approach that we have taken is an incredibly conservative approach to how we hold and manage the assets under our control. So very, very simply, if you give me a dollar, I put it in a segregated bank account that's safeguarded. I don't spend that money. I don't use it to pay my bills. I don't hypothecate it in any way. I do not lend it, which is a material difference between tokenized deposits at a bank and a stable coin issued by us. You take that, I give you a token, when you give me that dollar, you use it you know, to pay things or use it for internet speed of moving value, you want your dollar back. You come back to me, you give me that token, I burn it, I give you your dollar back. Literally the dollar that was sitting in the bank account. So the majority of the regulation around stable coins today puts in place best practices for how you're gonna hold those assets If you're going to hold those assets in another asset, for example, Circle holds 80% of its reserves in treasury bills. In a Circle reserve fund of one overseen by the SEC and managed by BlackRock. So 80% of our reserves sit in in that super safe asset class. And then we have 20% in, in commercial banks so that we can facilitate that liquidity. So... The structure of that and how those reserves are managed is is probably the most important thing. And then there's audits, obviously, and and how you're accountable to report that. And there are, you know, rules around redemption. You know, is redemption direct? Is is Circle ultimately responsible for redeeming that dollar? We agree that we are. So those are the types of criteria that are being, you know, placed on stablecoin issuers. And of which I would say, you know, the we are a driving force for articulating what those are and, and, you know, agree that that's the way that the reserve should be managed. Not everybody does it that way, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have to wrap up, but I have just one last final thought. It really interests me with this backdrop of these new lawsuits emerging from the SEC, the passing lawsuits in the EU. The, the, the contrast there is pretty interesting and stark. And then you have things like, you know, the world's largest banks and custodians are creating crypto trading desks like BNY, Fidelity, Schwab, State Street, Goldman, BlackRock. They all are creating custody solutions already for crypto. You have so much mixed news these days. Well, not all crypto is the same. Right. And I'm not not trying to say it's all the same, but the narrative is very scattered. And I think think it's it's normal. So... We are in the invention, the end of the invention cycle, the beginning of the innovation cycle for these types of Agreed. assets, right? Yep. Yep. And uh, and so this is so the characteristics, regardless of the, the the business or the technology, the characteristics of this period, right, and adoption of new technology is that um, you need. Uh, sufficiently low friction for people to try new things, mm-hmm. and sufficiently high positive friction, I really like your term, um, to enable appropriate scaling, right? It's, it's at the moment of inflection point yeah. where creating those safeguards become imperative because otherwise it's super difficult to manage the scaling. Yeah. And so I think right now you do have a number of players across the ecosystem 
that are playing with different roles, different uh, sets of innovation, mm -hmm. and thinking of crypto in terms of indeed different types of uh, assets that it can be applied towards. It's a, it's a, that is a very healthy phase, right? Yeah. Um, and what I certainly personally look at the, the introduction of my conferences in Europe is as a signal that we're approaching the beginning of the scaling phase, it's a good thing. I do believe that we still have a number of unknowns that need to be clarified, right? Yeah. Remember that the very, very first music streaming solution <laughs> was not Spotify. It was back in the 90s, God, I'm trying to remember, you know, yeah. real network, yeah. et cetera, yeah. right? And it was kind of the Wild West, including, you know, rights management, et cetera. And so there was this period that took about, you know, 15 years to really resolve, you know, some of it with lawsuits, some of it with, uh, with, with technology, et cetera, to really get to a solution which was adoptable mm -hmm. by a large number of people and this transform indeed the music industry. Yeah. But those things do take time. And I think we need to give time to time to actually allow the innovation cycles to go through, allow the right answers to customer problems to be identified and then to be scaled. I think we still have a lot of work in that I space. don't think you're that skeptical at all. Exactly. <laughs> I hear a lot of agreement in this room. <laughs> Well, thank you guys. This was terrific. Thanks, Mickey, for co-hosting. Thank Thanks, you. Tina, for being here. And Patrick, as always, pleasure. thank you. My Thanks. pleasure. Have a great rest of your time today. Thanks.